As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for joining us this week on the C.S. Lewis Podcast, the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. This week we are bringing you a special programme which was originally broadcast in 2019 on Unbelievable. Justin Briley hosted a discussion about the inklings between Mark Vernon and Malcolm Geith. Mark's book, A Secret History of Christianity, Jesus, The Last Inkling and the Evolution of Consciousness, explores his own search for Christian faith in light of the theology of members of the Inklings. Poet-theologian Malcolm Geitz engages with Mark on this view of Jesus as the epicentre of a new phase of consciousness and the future of Christian faith. To listen to other episodes of Unbelievable, check out our website where you can also find lots of great articles as well as more C.S. Lewis content. Visit premierunbelievable.com. For now, here's Justin's conversation with Mark Vernon and Malcolm Geith. Well, today on the show, we're discussing C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien and Owen Barfield, how the Inklings made sense of faith. Joined today by Mark Vernon and Malcolm Geith. Now, the Inklings was the name adopted by a small group of academics and writers who, in the 1930s to the 50s, met regularly to talk literature, philosophy and faith at the Eagle and Child pub in Oxford. It was there that early drafts of The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien and The Narnia Chronicles by C.S. Lewis were first read and critiqued and other writers such as Owen Barfield, Charles Williams and Hugo Dyson were also regular contributors. Well today on the show we're going to be talking about some of the philosophical and theological influences some of those members brought to that group. Uh, Lewis and Tolkien of course well known, Owen Barfield less so but he greatly influenced uh, Lewis's own journey towards Christian faith and to talk about this I'm joined by writer and philosopher Mark Vernon and poet theologian Malcolm Geitz. In his new book, A Secret History of Christianity, Jesus, The Last Inkling and the Evolution of Consciousness, Mark Vernon charts how Barfield's view of Jesus has been integral in his own story of making sense of faith. He says his view is not a demythologizing or liberal one, but it's really about a radical transformation of perception and consciousness. We'll find out more about that shortly. Malcolm Guite is ordained in the Church of England, a poet and a musician and a chaplain at Girton College, Cambridge. He's the author of books such as Mariner, A Voyage with Samuel Taylor Coleridge. In fact, if you search back in the profile archive, our other podcast from Premier Christian Radio, you'll probably find my interview with Malcolm about his life, faith and Mariner. Uh, but Malcolm is someone who's familiar with Barfield's thought and poetry. He'll be engaging with Mark today. So uh, Malcolm and Mark, welcome along to the programme today. 
Good Thank to you. Hear. It's great yeah, to have yeah. you both uh, in studio with me for this. Um, I just think this is going to be a most fascinating conversation between the three of us today. I'm, I'm looking forward to learning a lot as well in the course of it from you both. Um, uh, let's introduce you, you first of all, Mark. You've uh, been on the show but a number of years ago, and the last time you were actually in was to talk about a book you'd written on agnosticism. And at the time, you were identifying as an agnostic. Um, uh, but you're here today to talk about how you're kind of gradually putting the pieces together a bit bit further down the journey as it were um so tell us what's happened in in the intervening years since you were last on the show yeah well thank you it's very nice to be back and um i mean in a way barfield has happened to me in mm. the intervening years i was a i was a certain kind of agnostic i wasn't a um i don't know uh, whatever kind of agnostic mm. um i was an agnostic a searching agnostic you know kind of hovering on the brink as it were and found figures like socrates really inspirational in that position um and when i look back now i think one of the problems which i perhaps always had with christianity you know i was i was a, a kind of cradle christian brought up in a christian family christians all around me you even um, had a spell where you were looking at ordination in the oh no well i was a, i was an anglican priest were, actually right, yeah, yeah yeah so i did a sort of three-year um curacy as it's called mm. as an anglican priest um, but one of my struggles always was the figure of Jesus, in fact, um, which might sound strange for a Christian, but um, I never really had a, uh, problems with uh, an awareness of God. Um, in my agnostic phase, I wondered, but, you know, looking back, that has always felt like a keen presence to me. But I really did struggle to get a deep sense of Jesus, if you like. So, um, you know, the, the story of Jesus, uh, clearly moving, especially as it's enacted in liturgies, there's no problem with that. Um, Jesus as um, an important figure in our culture, um, no problem with that, a moral teacher. Um, but when it came to, I don't know, the way that Jesus actually changes the fabric of reality, you might say, the really mm. deep theological mm. stuff, I, I, I always struggled with that. Um, and it was Barfield's take on that which finally made me feel like this is a an account of it which i can really own and and experience directly myself that's really interesting we'll obviously get into the the depth of that shortly when we come to talk about the book and kind of what you lay out there as as your way forward um great pleasure to also introduce to the show malcolm guite uh malcolm, lovely to have you on um someone i've wanted to have on this program for a long time because uh, whenever I do anything around imagination when it comes to apologetics and theology, people often bring your name up and say, I love the poetry of Malcolm mm. Guyton, that sort of thing. But you, uh, you're, you've, you've been, um, if you, in a sense, marrying both the, the imagination, the poetry and so on with mm. pastoral uh, side of yeah. what you do. Um, so, so just would you encapsulate just quickly um, what you do now, how you got to, to do it and why yeah. you love doing it? Okay. So <laughs> I was... Um, I'm very lucky in that I'm having, as it were, my third go at, at Cambridge. Or my <laughs> thing. I came up, actually, to Cambridge as an agnostic myself, um, also having been brought up in faith, but having sort of um, rejected it for largely, I mean, both for emotional, but also for, for, for intellectual reasons. I you know, didn't think it was the case. But, but then, uh, of course, I began to read some proper philosophy and read Augustine and things that came. But... I'm my first love then, and still one of my deepest love was simply poetry, just delighting in poetry and myth and, and storytelling. And I realised that that was preparing me for a deeper encounter with Christ. And I love the phrase in C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy, um, where he says, I suppose in a way my imagination was baptised before I was, <laughs> and the rest of me just took a bit longer to catch up. 
So I, I became a Christian in my final years as, uh, at Cambridge. I went off. I was an English teacher after that for a while, and I loved doing that. But then I realised God was, in fact, calling me to the priesthood. So I had another go at Cambridge and came back and read theology. And actually, funnily enough, I actually, one thing I found quite disturbing about reading theology was the way the Bible was read was very, um, very analytical, very taking it all into bits and leaving the bits on the floor. Mm. And either on the one hand, you had people being very literalistic in a sort of slightly naive way, or on the other hand, you had people being hyper analytical. Mm. But nobody seemed to be reading the Bible poetically or imaginatively or letting it soak into them so in a way i then found myself reading the inklings and barfield and coleridge almost to help me cope with the dryness that's interesting of that theological training so then i I went off and was ordained Mm. and then lo and behold i had a third go coming back (laughs) and this time i decided it was time to 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 really think how my love of poetry and my Christian faith, you know, how my my my, my fairly orthodox Trinitarian mm. theology on the one hand, and my feeling for for intuition and imagination on the other might talk to each other. And most of what I've written in the last ten years or so has been an attempt yeah. not to to prove that they can work together, because in me they're working together all the time, but to discover a little bit more about the mystery of how they work together. Yeah, and, and I think it's really helpful. Your story is, like so many others, um, one in which the imagination and the, the theology and the, the, the experience come together. Mm. And very often I, I do this show on apologetics, and the vast majority of the mm. time we're, we're talking about you know logical arguments and philosophy yeah. and that sort of thing. And and it's always a shame when almost they pass like ships in the night. Mm. The fact that actually most people's journey might involve a bit of that that intellectual kind of putting the pieces together philosophically stuff, but a lot of it is also yeah. about the kind of world we want to exist mm. and and the way we engage our imagination mm. and what would it look like. And that yeah. sort of thing. I think one of the most important things I discovered, and in a way both Barfield and Coleridge helped me to do this, just as indeed they helped Lewis, was to realise that the word imagination doesn't only and always cash out in imaginary right. i.e made up not mm. really there that the imagination is also involved in in clothing everything with meaning in making a synthesis of everything and that um it's a yeah i mean to, to sort of put it in one sentence it's the discovery which is a glad discovery that the imagination is a truth-bearing faculty that mm. it it's capable of bringing us to certain things that really are the case which we could apprehend in no other way. I, I sometimes like to think that if I had been a fly on the wall at the Inklings uh, regular get-togethers down at the Eagle and Child in Oxford, Mark, it might have felt a little bit like an unbelievable show of sorts. <laughs> different people coming with their different ideas and yes. you know literature and, and things and just having a great conversation <laughs> over beer and a pipe, smoking a pipe and whatever. I mean, it's almost actually become um, some, something almost of folklore or, or something among some... <laughs> you know, there is this whole strain of, of uh, romanticism around C.S. Lewis and and his Oxford clique and so on in, in certain parts of the world. But what what's your understanding of who the Inklings were and, and what they did and, you know, the influence that obviously Tolkien, Lewis, Barfield had in that group? I mean, it might have been a lot more combative than even some of your shows. Yeah, probably, there are, there probably, are recorded yeah. remarks of someone saying, oh, not more hobbits and all that. Whether or not that's true, I don't <laughs> know. But exclusive <laughs> thrown in. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, but... Um, I think what they they were though um, on sort of parallel journeys, um, and it was very much about this link between the imagination and the poetic, and then truth. Um, mm. You know, as it's often discussed in more rational terms now for us. Um, and I think the key 
linkage there is perception. Um, it says, well, mm. what your mind, what you can see with your mind's eye. And, and this is, I think, um, they also found this very much um, in the Christian tradition. Um, I don't know if this is quite true, but just on a casual reading, I think probably Jesus' most common remark, certainly in the Synoptic Gospels, is, have you got eyes to see? Have you got ears to hear? And I think the parables, which are probably a more or less distinctive teaching method of Jesus, one thing that's really helped me was realizing they're not actually moral tales, um, because some of them are actually quite immoral if you read them in that way. Mm. Um, what they are, though, are attempts to try and take you to an edge and see whether you can see the world in a completely different way. And Barfield got onto this because um, in his early life, when he was Oxford with Lewis when they first met in the 1920s, um, he went through a period of depression, you know, pretty serious, uh, um, uh, feeling that life was not up to it. And um, poetry helped him. But because he did, what he tried to do with poetry was stay with the experience that words can give you, that a new world is opening up before you, mm. staying with that felt perception, not trying to close it down, not trying to sort of rationalise it away, but just seeing where that channel can, can lead you. Um, and for me too, that was a key moment when I... I started to uh, listen to Jesus, as it were, as someone who was doing a similar thing, who was, as, as William Blake put it, was Christ the imagination. And that, that was a pivotal moment for me to see that this was almost an invitation to move into worlds that are right here, but that at the time I had absolutely no mm. perception of at all. What, what, what at the time that he began, you know, contributing to the Inklings was Barfield's position where uh, on faith as it were what what kind of did he describe himself as a christian at that point no um he he, he grew up in a, a sort of neutral family mm. um and um he was very influenced too um though when he was doing his work on on poetry um he was very influenced by anthroposophy which is a sort of uh, a christian heretical group you might say it's unorthodox at mm. least um, and he felt that the founder of anthroposophy, Rudolf Steiner, um, discovered a lot of things which he was onto as well. He was mm. subsequently baptised as an Anglican. He was, um, yeah. yeah. Mm. I think one of the things about that early, mm. this is pre-Inklings, really, you right. know, the yeah, friendship yeah. Yeah. with Barfield precedes all of that. And we think of, a lot of people now think, oh, well, Lewis is a bit more orthodox and he's got to bring Barfield along <laughs> with him, you know, but Barfield <laughs> helped Lewis out of it. But when they met, of course, when they actually met for the first time, Lewis was radically and angrily atheist mm. and essentially materialist in his philosophy and processing the sort of anger that came out of the experience of the Great War mm. and, and as it were, trying to find, you know, very influenced by his, his sixth-form tutor, whom he called the Great Knock, you know, who was a, was a sort of old-fashioned 19th-century scientific rationalistic yes. atheist. Mm. So Lewis describes his life at that time as being completely divided, where with his mind he was mm. like... Yeah. I'm not having any of this stuff and nonsense we are all atoms concatenating <laughs> about in the emptiness of the cosmos, you know. But meantime, he was secretly yes. loving the Norse legends and yeah. reading up about, you know, the Isles of the Hesperides. So he meets Barfield. And at that point, it would be perfectly fair to say that Barfield was a far more religious person than Lewis was, mm. even though he wasn't a fully orthodox Christian at that point. And it was Barfield who began a con long conversation with Lewis, which was... Friendly, but also competitive. In fact, they nicknamed it the Great War, <laughs> which for characters that actually been through the Great yeah, War was, was quite, quite, quite anyway, a title. Yeah. Basically, one of the things that made Barfield hugely attractive person to Lewis was that it gave Lewis the first, for the first time, the hope that his guilty pleasure, which was mythology. <laughs> might have a grain of truth in it right and that was so exciting and that actually acknowledging that 
became an important part of of Lewis's journey to Christianity. I think. Would you would you would, would you agree with that? Yeah, no, for sure. I about, think that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's well known, if you're into C.S. Lewis, that he has this conversation with Tolkien yes. one night. That's been well chronicled, that sort of, hasn't sort it? Sort of, yeah. as it were, tipped him over the edge into Christianity. But I think the deep work, the long work, over many years through this discussion called The Great War, was done very much with Lewis and Barfield. And Lewis, you know, dedicated books to Barfield. Mm. Lucy in the Narnia stories is named after Barfield's eldest child. Um, you know, there's, it's, there's, you don't have to infer much, actually. It's pretty mm. explicit once mm. you start looking. That, that's interesting. Just to kind of explain where Tolkien fits into this mix, um, did he come along a little bit later after this, this friendship had been established between Barfield and, and Lewis? And what was his role? You, you mentioned briefly that he's often spoken of as this stroll through Magdalen Gardens or something that sort of meant that the penny dropped in some way for Lewis. But what was, in your view, is that a, is that a good explanation of what happened? Yeah, I think. I mean, well, Tolkien was that little bit older, so um, he was already an academic when they were there as undergraduates, and. Um, Tolkien and Lewis met first of all, and I guess Barfield got drawn into the orbit as well. Yeah, I think Bar- Barfield had, had was at the slight disadvantage that he didn't at that stage actually live in Oxford. You right. know, he was kind of practicing as a as a lawyer, which he hated. You know, yeah. and then sort of sneaking up to Oxford to have a real life of the mind <laughs> with his friends. But there is a so the talk talking friendship is certainly very important, mm-hmm. and I I do take the view that that famous stroll on Addison's Walk really was what what made the difference when Tolkien said. The things you love in mythology, in this one instance in the story of Jesus, have actually become history. The true myth. They've become the true myth. So your your rational mind and your imagination finally not only point towards, but actually in the end come from the same source, which is Jesus the Logos. But I don't think that conversation could have happened without Barfield. The interesting thing about Tolkien and Barfield is that Tolkien, who was a professor of Anglo-Saxon, you know, the youngest professor of Anglo-Saxon, mm. and so knew his linguistics inside out, was so moved by Barfield's book, Poetic Diction, which is, t- takes the view that earlier languages indicate not just older ways of saying things, but actually an older way of seeing things, that the earlier language is a kind of more unified consciousness. Tolkien says somewhere in a letter to Lewis, I think, that as a lecturer... He would be just about to say something in his uh, full professor, and he'd think, "Oh, I can't say that because of Barfield." <laughs> you know, Barfield's theories of language had an influence, had a huge yeah, influence right. on Tolkien, and I therefore I think also gave Tolkien confidence. I mean, Barfield was really saying, um, "It's not the case that story and myth are an accidental byproduct of language of a language of grunts and grains, but much more that our." Our myth of mythopoeic imagination is the very thing that produces language. Mm. Language is itself myth patterned, as it were, in elf and, and obviously, t- Tolkien was was a committed Catholic, pretty much. You know, most of his life, yeah. I think. And and in that, in that sense, w- w- as as Lewis and Barfield were going on their own theological explorations and so on, would would you say that he acted in some way as a sort of mentor to, to both of them in any way? Or, or I mean, I'm just interested to know what the kind of relationship was between the the, the three of them uh, as they started to work things. Yeah, my sense of it is more as interlocutor. Mm. Um, But I think Barfield did have this deep impact upon Tolkien, whereas in a way he had this transformative impact upon Lewis. Right. Um, uh, So, I mean, words were key to it all. Um, You know, they were all amazing linguists and philologists. Um, And and in a way, a way of summarising Barfield's insight was he felt that words have soul. 
um, that they're they're alive. They're not just signs that we use to point and grunt, as Malcolm was just saying, um, but they themselves convey the sort of living vitality of what it is to yeah. to be conscious, to have experience, and that's why poetry works. Mm. You know, it's why novels work too. It's why when you read a novel, you don't just feel you've been told told a report of a life. You experience the life. Mm. That is how deeply transformative and powerful words yeah. can be. So could you explain for us then just what impact Barfield has had on your own journey at this point? Obviously, it was significant on Lewis, and perhaps you can tie into how that's become significant for you. Yeah, so he, in, he, what he did was he g- gave me a big picture about the significance of Christianity, and particularly why this figure of Jesus became so seminal um, in the West, um, and, and then globally, I think. And it was to do with this idea about words. So if you take the idea that words have this kind of living quality then if you study the history of words, you can see how consciousness has changed, how people's experience of what it is to be human has changed over time. and They, they become fossils of consciousness, as he put mm. it. Um, and what he did was do that very work. In fact, Barfield's first book was called History in English Words, where he tried to tell us a history of the British Isles through the words as they, that they pop up over the centuries. Right. Um, and what he realised was that there was a kind of pivotal moment when words instead of conveying meaning from the outside in, um, which is what they did say in the time of the ancient Greeks, um, Homer, um, and I think actually in the oldest bits of the Bible, um, the way, if you read the very oldest bits of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, um, it's very clear that Yahweh is being experienced as this presence force in nature. Um, you know, he, he is sort of identified with Mount Zion, mm. and that presence moves from the outside in and forms who you are. And that gradually shifts um, in the centuries, particularly before Jesus' birth, um, where a kind of inner vitality starts to emerge. And Barfield thought you, could, you can literally track this with words. Um, and Jesus comes at this pivotal moment where the inside has sort of fully come to life. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why Jesus makes otherwise quite odd comments about it's not what you take in that counts, but what comes out of you that counts mm. and so on. And this is normally reduced to a kind of moral um, imperative. But I think it's saying something more profound, which is that we now have become almost, well, certainly we, we now experience life in a very, very different way. Um, we become individuals in the sense that you and I experience it. Um, and that what happens inside us, um, the microcosm, if you like, can mirror the macrocosm, but with full responsibility, full freedom, um, full imaginative engagement. We're called into a completely different way of engaging with the divine that got caught up in the figure of Jesus and then in people's reflections upon him and launched this new dispensation. And would this be sort of along the lines of what Jesus says about the kingdom of heaven is within you? Uh, is that the, the the sense in which Jesus has kind of taken it from the outside to, to this experience from within uh, by which we engage yeah very engage much i mean God. for me that's a really pivotal um remark certainly in luke you know the kingdom's mm. not here it's not there it's within you and i think that it's one of those comments which jesus must have said himself because it's pretty clear that a lot of his early disciples and followers didn't really understand what he was talking about they kind of wrestle with it i think you see it particularly in the, the in a way the first great christian struggle with the notion of the second coming of the apocalypse um, and you can read say in paul a series of different stances that he takes i think as he tries to wrestle with what jesus was really revealing and then finally i think comes to um, the sense and the awareness that actually he himself is taking on the mind of christ that he's becoming a co-worker with christ and that is the sort of the full new sense of things which jesus revealed to him just before i bring malcolm in on this just just to you're obviously 
putting a lot you know from the book into a very short sound bites there but but when you speak of jesus the last inkling and the evolution of consciousness uh, in what sense is jesus sort of this new paradigm for for a sense of consciousness and and experience and, and that sort of thing is it is it just that he's the right person at the right time to kind of be that that shift into a new way of understanding god and oneself i think he is the person who um for the first time in the fullest possible sense has a notion of you might say his own i amness as mm-hmm. a human individual that can be completely transparent to the divine i am as is revealed in the old testament um and that uh, sort of complete um ex- uh, bringing into the world of the divine i am in the human individual i think that's what people sensed in the person of jesus and then tried to work okay. out well we'll come back to to how that cashes out in terms of obviously trinity typical trinitarian theology and so on mm. but um malcolm what is this kind of a, a, where you've read barfield the way yeah. you've engaged yeah. his thought yeah as i well. think it might be helpful just to sort of in summing up barfield mm. um just to use a couple of terms that barfield himself used about consciousness mm. he used this phrase a evolution of consciousness but he thought we as human beings were kind of on a on a journey of development mm. and he thought the first stage was what he called original participation what he means by original participation, original just means in the beginning, mm. uh, was that, um, and he has very strong linguistic evidence for this, he says, we tend to think of out there as just a bunch of dead stuff. Mm. Like, and it happens to be, you know, there's a wind blowing. Yeah. But, and then what people used to think was everybody always saw, saw the world as full of dead stuff. And then if somebody wanted to, to, to express their inner thoughts, they said, oh, the wind is a little bit like a spirit blowing or the wind is a little bit like breathing and I can draw a little person blowing the wind out as though they'd made it up afterwards. Mm. Basically, what Barfield showed pretty definitively um, was that when you look at the actual words that people used in the, back then, in Greek, for example, the word pneuma mm. means wind blowing, it means breath, breathing, but it also absolutely and always means spirit. Right. And everything we mean by spirit, both, if you like, the Holy Spirit out there and the inner spirit there. Now, the Greeks weren't short of a word or two, you know, a pretty <laughs> sophisticated language. So Barfield says, why is it that they would have the same word for three things that sp- we split up and need different words right. for? Like, to take the Latin words taken from pneuma, and pneuma, of course, lives to spirit, spiritus. Mm. We've got we've got respiration on the one hand mm-hmm. and inspiration on the other and we think mm. they're separate things but barfield showed pretty conclusively because it's the same in hebrew and in mm. latin that actually for an ancient person with this original participation you couldn't breathe in without feeling that god had breathed into you you couldn't breathe out you couldn't feel the wind without knowing that it was the breath of god but all that stuff we think of as personal was always everywhere out there right. mm. which is great except that it's not yours you don't have a personal spiritual experience. You just are part of a bigger thing. So what Barfield thought was that way of changing gradually changes. And the world is, as it were, it's as though all the meaning that was out there gradually comes in here. Now, that can be traumatic for us mm. because suddenly we look out there and it's just a bunch of dead stuff. Right. So Barfield thought there must be a turning point where having had all that meaning, as it were, and joy and beauty and personhood that we used to think was everywhere, all the gods and goddesses, Mm -hmm. as being, no, it's just me in my little island in Skull, that that could not be the end point of the story because that would leave us as like meaningless little bubbles of consciousness stuck in in an otherwise dead universe, yes. So he said, wait a minute, there's got to be a turning point where this time we've received that so we can have the gift of being persons and free 
Now, can we actually breathe it back out in such a way that the world is clothed with it again, but we're in a personal relationship? And as he began to articulate, he realised, wait a minute, what I'm talking about is divinity coming down, being inside a person, <laughs> being breathed out again, and redeeming the world. Now, where have I heard that Where have before? I heard that story before? And he began yeah. to see that in the story of the incarnation, actually, death, which is the experience of alienation, mm. resurrection, and especially the sending of the spirit, you know, he breathes on them, that, I mean, at its most remote, you could say this is an analogy or an example, mm. But actually, I think Barfield believed that Jesus was himself that turning point of the cosmos when everything that had been sent in can now be shared and that we can share Christ's consciousness, which is both personal like ours, but also totally, as you said, open to the divine, transparent to the divine. Does that make sense? It it does. I'm I I I I'm just finding it all fascinating. I mean, these are, these are new ideas, or I, at least ideas I've heard. But be interesting yeah. to see how they they were obviously catalyzed in in the yeah. thinking of of Arfield and so on. Um, in the, and obviously how it all linked in with the person of Jesus. Thank you for listening to a special edition of the C.S. Lewis podcast, which was originally recorded in 2019. We're going to hear part two of this discussion next week, so do come back and join us. Don't forget to visit the Premier Unbelievable website where there are lots of great articles and podcasts. Visit premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for bonus content, a free ebook, and our regular updates. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time.